Amen. Has that, that's done it. Okay, great. Thank you, Jonathan. And uh, hello, everyone. I'm Becky. It's great to be with you. Um, we're still morning, just this morning um, into the afternoon. And I will be covering the heart aspect. And Paul and I have shared our stories a lot of different places. And I like to give this as an example of what our relationship is like. We've been married 30 years this year, so we've had some time to get to know each other. I come from America, if you're wondering what the accent is, but I have lived in this country now longer than I lived in that one. So when I go back to St. Louis, where I'm from, they go, oh, where are you from? And I go, here, you know, but, oh, you sound, you sound different. Um, so, but I know that I still sound American to you. Um, so, but that's okay. Um, so, in our relationship, let's just say, Paul and I watch, when we watch television, I'm a big K-drama fan, so Korean drama, I recommend it. So, um, they're, they're, they're brilliantly written, great stories. I am a feeler. So, when he talks about experiences, about do you feel something, well, I feel everything. So, um, so we're watching these stories, they're, they're happy, they're sad, and, um, and I will, if I see someone cry, I'll start crying. I don't even have to know what they're crying about. I see someone else well up, I'll well up. You know, airports are a minefield for me because you see all these reunions and all these goodbyes and I get tearful at everyone. Um, but we'll be watching something together and I will react to the story, if it's sad or happy, if it's sad, I'll start to cry, I can't stop it. Um, I try swallowing it, but I just cry. And, um, and you know, this actually happened once, he turned to me and he went, what's, what's wrong? What's wrong? Have you finally had enough of me? I mean, this is what he's thinking, like, is it what, like something, what's, what's happening to you right now? Um, why are you crying? And I'm like, hello, it's sad what we're watching together, this is really sad. And he'll go, oh, yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> yeah, I can see objectively it's sad. Now, for me, it will evoke an emotional response, and I will cry for him. He's just observing it. Yeah, I can see that's sad. But he doesn't, he doesn't experience it the same way I do. Uh, and that's just kind of an insight. So as he said, we're, we're quite um, opposite extremes in that. And we have learned over the 30 years to understand each other a bit better. Um, but this time in our session together, we're going to be talking and then about the issues of the heart. He talked about his head, his rational thinking, and I um, can confirm as a witness, it's true, everything he said. Um, and, but in this session, we're going to be talking about the issues of the heart. Um, that can stop us. So let's say we want to respond to Jesus. We want to step into the more he has when he says, come to us, but we find it hard. If we've been hurt, and all of us will have been in one way or another, those hurts can hold us back, even when we want to say yes, as I said to Jesus, and we want to step out of the boat with him. And in order to stop those things having power over us, we need to learn to become overcomers overcomers in adversity, which is hard, but it can be done if we keep focused on two very important things. And the first one is to remember and to rehearse the fact that God is good. God is good even when our circumstances aren't. God doesn't bring the adversity into our lives. He just doesn't do that. The things that are hard and, are, and that are painful are a result of the fall back at the beginning. 
Back then in the garden, Satan came and he twisted God's word, and he still uses that trick today. And when Adam and Eve fell for it back then, they gave him, the enemy, an open door to come in to attempt to steal and to kill and to destroy anything good and anything of God in the world. Satan is still at it today. He can be very effective at bringing destruction to people's lives. He's the one responsible for the pain in the world, not God. God is always good, and he's always working to reverse the damage that's done by Satan. Which leads me to the second thing, which is that because God is good and he's always working to reverse the damage done by Satan, he can redeem any situation and bring something positive out of it. Romans 28 famously says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, I know it may seem impossible to believe at times, but God can and he will if we allow him to, he can bring something positive out of even the most negative situation. And remembering that God is good and he can bring good out of any situation when we bring him into it, that helps us to persevere in overcoming adversity. Also, keeping the big picture in mind is a big help. The Apostle Paul sums it up in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, therefore, we do not lose hearts. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, you may hear that and you may say, well, yeah, that's all very well, but my troubles don't feel light and my troubles don't feel momentary. And if that's how you're feeling, um, then I understand. Uh, and I'll just tell you a bit about my story. So as I said, um, I grew up in St. Louis in the middle of America. I grew up in, um, in a Christian family uh, Southern Baptist. Now, Paul and I both were raised going to church, but our experiences of growing up in church are very different. So Paul was never taught to read the Bible for himself or to pray the prayer. I had the opposite experience. So I grew up in church. I was untaught as soon as I could read to read the Bible. I was taught to pray the prayer. So when I was four, five, up to six, I prayed the prayer many times for Jesus to live in my heart and to be my friend. So I've always known him in my life like that. I was taught um, when I was in grade school, um, primary school, we'd have in our Sunday school, we'd have these things called Bible drills. And so we would stand in a line, the children, with the Bible under our, in our hand like this, and then someone would call out a scripture reference, let's say Galatians, Galatians 2.6. And then whoever found it first, I found it! And then you'd read out the, you'd read out the verse and then you'd get a gold star. So, um, so I grew up doing Bible drills and being taught to memorize um, Bible verses. So every week as well, we'd get memory verses to take home, and if you memorized it during the week and you came back and you could recite it, you got a gold star. So I was taught to read the Bible, I was taught to ask Jesus to live in my heart, um, and, and I'm very, very grateful. I'm grateful that I have that foundation of knowing the Bible. I'm grateful I have that foundation of understanding who Jesus is, that he died for me, and I need him in my life. So that's been my background, and my parents encouraged me in that very much. 
So I was very privileged in that way. But my family had a lot of tragedy in it. Um, my parents had, let's say, so now I have an older sister. But if all my siblings had survived or lived, there'd be seven of us. So um, my eldest sister, she was born nine months and one day after my parents got married. My dad's always very careful because they were good Christian people. It was nine months and one day after they got married. My mom was only 18. She'd um, gone sort of against her parents' wishes. My dad was 25. He'd been in the Navy. Um, they wanted her to go to college and all of that. And, um, so they, but they were in love and they got married. And my sister was born straight away. Um, but then I had a brother born 18 months later, and he had epilepsy. And so one night he had a seizure, and he'd suffocated in his blanket, so my mother found him in the morning. So that was their first loss in that way. She was only 21 by then. Um, then they had a stillbirth and a miscarriage. Then they had me. Then I had a sister who was born when I was two, and she... Um, had bacterial meningitis at six months. So she was born healthy but had meningitis. She survived that but was left severely brain damaged. And so my memories from the ages of two to five when she was alive are um, just she couldn't do anything. All she could do was lie flat and swallow. So she'd be fed, she'd have to be held and be fed, but everything else was done for her. Now, as a small child, I didn't really understand what was going on. She was just my sister. It was all I knew. Um, but now, as an adult, looking back, I think my parents must have been incredibly stressed. My mother was her full-time carer when my dad was working, um, and so it must have been very difficult. And now I know that her heart would stop at times. They'd have to rush her into hospital and things like that. Um, and when she was three, her heart stopped beating and it just didn't start again, so she died then. So for my parents, another tragedy. And my mother had been the full-time carer for her for three years. Then I had another sister who was born when I was seven. <clears throat> and she um, also had epilepsy, which is unusual. It's not hereditary um, or genetic. But she also had epilepsy. And what happened was she was on a lot of different medications over the years, trying to settle her down. Again, I was a child going through school. And I just knew she was a bit hyper sometimes because the medication would affect her that way because it was all working in the brain. This was back in the 70s, 80s. Um, and so they've learned a lot since then. But then, um, but they got her stabilized and she was going to a special school and I was left to look after her one night when I was 13. She was um, five. And my parents had gone out because in American churches, in this church, my parents taught a Sunday school class for adults. And so they'd gone to visit uh, a new couple who'd come to their class on Sunday for the first time. So they just went to see them for about an hour and left me looking after my sister, which was not unusual for a, a short amount of time. But this night, um, I was, uh, Beth was my sister. She was having a bath, and I was playing the piano at the time. And she called to me, and she said, Becky, I could hear it. Becky, I want to come out now. And she needed help with things. So I said, I'll be there in a minute. I just want to finish the song I'm playing, and then I'll come and get you out, and I'll help you. But unfortunately, in the time when I finished playing and then went to get her, she'd had a seizure. So when I opened the door, I found her... Um, lying in the bath, face down, and floating. And I, of course, panicked, pulled her out, um, did 
what I knew to do, which was call the emergency services. Um, I didn't know if she was breathing or not. I didn't, you know, all I could do was pray, God, please don't, please let her be alive, please let her be alive. And so um, I tried to get her dressed. She was unconscious and all of that. And then my parents, so the paramedics came, worked on her. My parents came home to the lights and sirens outside. Um, we all went off to the hospital. She was put on a ventilator, but she died three days later. So you can imagine, for me, what a tragedy. For my parents, this is the third child they've lost. And people said to things, things to them like, well, where were you when it happened? And things like that, which compounded their guilt and grief. But for me, as a 13-year-old, I just completely shut down. So my memories, I, I have vague memories. I, I do remember, but I kind of went through it on autopilot. So I'd go to the, um, I remember going to the funeral, but I don't remember much about it apart from a sea of faces all looking at me. Um, and then I think now, if this had happened now, I would be told to get counseling, I would have to talk about it, but at the time, nobody actually asked me what happened. My parents didn't ask me, you know, they was just like, I don't know if they didn't want to make me feel bad or they or just had too much to cope with themselves. Um, and so I just went, got on with life. So we had the funeral. I went back to school and pretended like nothing happened. And um, obviously it did, though. So what I learned is that we can be very good at shutting down parts of ourselves where we've been hurt or traumatized. Now, that's my story. It's fairly unique. I mean, I do meet other people who've had similar experiences of something terrible happening as a result when they were in charge and it still traumatizes them. But we all have a story of different things in life that have come at us or that have wounded us or that have left us feeling wounded and hurt and things we're ashamed of or things that have been done to us that make us feel like um, we've done something wrong, things like that. We all have a sort of story. Um, of things that have happened in life. That's, that's my, that bit of my story. Um, and I tell it because during that time, <clears throat> as I say, I completely detached myself from it. I pretended it didn't happen, and I thought if I do that, it can't hurt me. Well, actually, I didn't think anything logically. It was all just done by instinct. I'm just gonna push this down and bury it, and let's just not go there because it's too painful and to, I felt so guilty because I knew if I'd gone when she called me, it wouldn't have happened and life would have just gone on as it was. So I thought, let's just push this down. I don't want anyone to ever know that happened. I don't want myself to know that that happened. I just want to forget about it, cut it off, pretend um, it never happened and get on with my life, um, which I did fairly successfully. I went through school. I had friends. I did well in school, um, carried on. You know, my faith was still strong. In fact, it was my rock, but I knew God was, the, God was the one who knew she called me and I didn't go. He knew. And so I was too embarrassed to talk to him about it too, because he knows my secret shame, and he must be really upset with me. And I, you know, he, he knows what I did, that I didn't go. Um, so I couldn't go there with him. The thing is, he really, really, really wanted me to go there with him. He really wanted to deal with my guilt. He really wanted to help me not to live with that controlling um, shame and the thing that I buried. So I could pretend it didn't affect me. But you know in life, we know that if we bury things, we, 
they're, they're going to keep coming up. It's kind of like a zombie. <laughs> you think in the zombie, you're going to bury it, it's dead, but it's just going to keep coming back up. So as an example, if um, someone would start to talk about my sister, well, I'd immediately feel panic rising, and I'd have to get out of the room. If someone started to talk about just epilepsy, I'd immediately feel panic rising, and I'd have to get out of the room. If somebody even sometimes started talking about having a bath, I'd feel panic rising, and I'd have to get out of the room. It controlled me. And um, I tried to pretend it didn't, but it really did. Um, so what happened was I went through my teenage years like that, and then I um, decided to come overseas for a term and come to England. And it's a long story how I end up, ended up where I was, but I ended up living at Wycliffe College in Oxford, which where Paul was in his first year of training, and that's when we met. But I also met the same John he was talking about, who said it to him about uh, praying in tongues, you idiot, and don't you know, you know, it's not, yeah, all of that. Um, I also met him. And what happened was the first weekend, um, I'd been there about a week, I'd met a few people, I'd met John, I'd met Paul and different people because we ate meals together in the, in the common room thing, um, and dining room. And he, um, so I was waiting outside the phone box, so this was 1990, January 1990. I was waiting outside the phone box, we didn't have mobile phones, I had to stand, you had to take your turn to make a phone call. And I was waiting there and he walked by and he said, oh, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm just, um, I'm just waiting to make a phone call. I was in a very minor car accident before I'd come out. Um, someone had gone into the back of my car, but it wasn't bad, but I had to sort insurance and, oh, he says to me, were you hurt? And I said, not really, I have a bit of whiplash in my neck, but it's nothing serious. And he said, oh, can I pray for you? And I said, well, sure, I know, I was a good Christian girl. Um, I thought he'd add me to his prayer list. And, to, you know, it's nighttime prayer list. So I said, sure, you, of course, yeah, of course, you can pray for me. He said, great, when you finish your phone call, come find me and I'll pray for you. And I thought, well, that's different. You know, just on his prayer, he actually wants me to be in the room to pray with him. I'm not used to that. Um, but okay, as I always say, I was in a new country. I wanted to be polite. So I just thought, okay, this is how they do it. I'll come, okay, you know, I'll go along with it. I'll come find you after I finish my phone call and let you... Pray with, pray for me. So I did, made my phone calls to the insurance company, and I went and found him. And um, he uh, then said, right, okay, I've been talking to God about you while I've been waiting. I was like, oh, okay. And he said, I've, I've talked to God, and he says you're converted, you're a Christian. And I was like, oh, well, thanks, God. You know, okay, um, good to know. And, and he says you know how to pray. I was like, oh, I felt really affirmed. Oh, thanks. I didn't even know God would speak like I me. Mean, yeah, it was all, this was all new to me. Um, and I said, oh, okay. So uh, he says, but, um, but, but so what I'm going to do now, he says, you're converted. I don't need to explain to you about Jesus because you know Jesus. But what I'm going to do now is um, just pray for you in the power of the Holy Spirit that he would come and heal you where you've been injured. And I was like, okay. Um, again, totally new to me. My church was great that I'd grown up in, you know, but we never talked about the Holy Spirit and never, we talked a lot about Jesus, but never that, and we, you know, you could have a nudge or, a, you know, you could feel like you needed to call someone, but never like he would come into and do something in the moment. Um, but I was like, again, okay, well, I'll go, you know, I don't want to be rude, so, yeah. And I felt comfortable with him. And I thought, well, again, I'm here for new experiences. Let's, let's see. Um, I, I, I believe in God. I trust God. Um, so, okay. 
I felt completely safe, is what I'm trying to say. So he um, said, okay, well, what we'll do is you put your hands out like you're going to receive a gift, just so you're open. It's a sign of openness. And I'm just going to put my hand here where your whiplash is, and we'll just go and ask the Holy Spirit to come and heal you. Okay. So that's what we did. And he said, you know him, so you invite him. So I said, okay, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. And he said, I said, he's coming in just to heal, heal um, this damage. And so after about 30 seconds, my neck got really, like, hot, like I'd been on a heating pad hot, really hot. And um, I was quite surprised because I didn't know what to expect, but I wasn't expecting anything really. And I thought, oh, my neck has got really hot. Something's, you know, it's like weird, like I'm fire hot. And he goes, okay, that's good. Let's, let's keep praying. Let's, let's see what else God wants to do. Okay, so I just stayed in that moment of um, openness before the Lord, and that is the first time in, it's been seven, almost eight years, that a memory of my sister surfaced that I didn't push immediately back down. So whenever a memory would come up through my teenage years, I'd push it straight back down. I was like, I'm not going there. I'm not thinking about that. But, it's, but this time, for some reason, the memory came up of my sister just of her, not of the accident, just of her, and I started to gently cry. And now, I would have never allowed that to happen anywhere else at any other time. <clears throat> and I still can't say why I did then, why I didn't stop it, other than the presence of the Holy Spirit, which for the first time, I sort of allowed him and given him permission to move <clears throat> and to do what he wanted to do. And so John said, right, okay, well, what, what's going on now? And so I told him the story, the first time I told anyone. I didn't tell him about her calling me. That was years before I could admit to that. But I did tell him about finding her. And he said, you know, Becky, even if you'd done that on purpose, you could still be forgiven. And I went, oh, you're, oh, wow, you're right. Even if I'd done that on purpose, I can be forgiven. You know, I truly believe that God, I truly believe that about other people. If someone did something premeditated and killed someone, but then they repented and they were sorry, God would forgive them. I had no problem with that. But when it came to me in an accident, I couldn't believe there was forgiveness for me. I'd got it wrong. And so when he said that, it was like suddenly the, my whole perspective on it changed. And that's partly the power of sharing <laughs> what we hide. Um, it brings, someone else can give their perspective. I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. And um, he went on to say, you know, it's like when you have something in your life like that that you hold on to, it's like a bit of broken glass and you just clutch it in your hand. And the Lord really, really what is saying to you, open your hand, let me take that brokenness. Let me take that bit of broken glass. It's hurting you, it's not for you to carry. And then he will come and heal where you've been cut. So it's a two, sort of two-step process. Um, and when I tell that story, which I do now a lot, some people look at me or some people go, wow, I can't believe that's what he said to you. Why did he say that? Um, and I would say he said that because he was listening to the Holy Spirit at the same time as he was listening to me. And I didn't need, oh, that must have been awful for you. Oh, dear. What I needed was to hear forgiveness for me. I needed to hear release of guilt for me. 
And so him saying that, I sort of describe it as um, I built a huge brick wall that I was hiding behind. I wouldn't let people know that part of me or that bit of history of me. And so I was hidden behind that wall. But this revelation that um, there was forgiveness for me, even though I knew it for other people, but I didn't receive it for my, I didn't believe it for myself, was like a wrecking ball coming and hitting that wall. It didn't knock the wall down, that took years, <laughs> but it cracked the wall so it could begin to be taken down. So that was my story of um, the, the, what happened to me when I was 13, how I lived with it but just denied it. But, this, but God, in his kindness, all the time was saying, Becky, please, let's do this together. I know you've been wounded, I know it hurts, I know, you, I know how you feel. It wasn't my plan for you or your family, but let me come in and redeem it, let me come in and bring you healing in the situation. But I wanted no part of it. Firstly, I didn't understand God's goodness and love that way, but also I was too ashamed. And it was, to be honest, really painful to deal with it. I did, I just, it was easier to not look at it, to not deal with it for many years. So this God in his kindness, I always say God had to bring me out of my context to another country to meet this crazy guy who would pray for anybody for anything um, to allow his spirit to, I sometimes I call it in the book being ambushed by the spirit. Um, he sort of set me up and it's like, finally, I've got a chance to actually deal with this and, um, and bring her some healing and some restoration where she's been so wounded. And so that's my story. As I say, my story is unique to me. You all will have your own story. Everybody has a story of what life has done to them, of, of, of what they've gone through, different things, different experiences. And I just want to share then some lessons I've learned out of that. And the first one is to say, don't get stuck in a place of suffering. Now, I know none of us would choose to, if someone said, hey, I want to get, do you want to join me getting stuck in suffering? Nobody would go, yeah, let me sign up for that. You'd know, like, nobody's going to choose to do that, but it's often what happens. And I think a helpful way to look at this is in Psalm 84, which talks about those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. And that's all of us headed to our ultimate destiny with the Lord in heaven one day. We are on a journey through this life, and our destination is eternity with him. And the psalm says in um, a couple of verses, blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Now, most scholars agree that the valley of Baca means the valley of weeping or the valley of tears. So I'd like to read that again with that in mind. Blessed are those whose strength is in you who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Now I think the valley of weeping sounds a lot like a time of suffering to me. And according to this psalm, it's a place that we will all pass through on our way to appearing before God in Zion. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, have we in any way set up camp and decided to settle in the valley of weeping instead of passing through it? And if we have, why? Well, I think the reason it can happen is that 
for some of us, we just can't see a way out of the valley. It stretches as far as the eye can see, and we lose hope that there's anything better ahead. So we just decide it's too hard, it's too much work, why bother? I'm just going to stop here. I'm going to just camp out here, hunker down, and I'm not going to bother carrying on. And I think that must have been a real temptation for David in the years between being a shepherd when he, and being crowned king, anointed as king, um, and then um, all the years until he actually became king. And in those years between he was exiled, he was hunted, he was betrayed, uh, among many other difficult things, he had to hide out in caves, he had to feign insanity at one point in order to stay alive. And these years were a real time of hardship for David, and he could have given up on God. He could have decided it was just all a lie. He could have become embittered. Instead, we see throughout the Psalms that although he would have a good old moan from time to time, he continued to keep the faith, and he was determined to keep going with God. Um, And I love uh, Psalm 71 as an example of this. He says, deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. You know, he's he's honest about these bad things around me, these people around me. But for you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From my birth, I've relied on you. I will ever praise you. I have become a sign to many. You are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. So he goes from this is my situation, it's hard, to actually, God, you're amazing. You've always been with me. Uh, My mouth, I'm just going to keep praising you. And then he goes back to, but don't cast me away, God. Don't cast me away. Don't forsake me. Um, My enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire. They say, God's forsaken him. Pursue him, seize him. No one's going to rescue him. So because that's my situation, God, don't be far from me. Come quickly. Help me. Um, May my accusers perish in shame. Um, You know, he's very real about how he feels. And then he carries on by saying, but as for me, I shall always have hope. I will praise you more and more. And I just love that because David, and all he went through, he's still saying, but as for me, and all the enemies around him, he's saying, as for me, I shall always have hope. And I think it's an incredible declaration he made. And because David did hold on to hope, he has become a sign to all succeeding generations of what a life of worship and a life of intimacy with God can look like. He understood God doesn't mean more for us, uh, doesn't does not mean for us to do more than pass through the valley of weeping. We need to keep moving. He knew that on our way to somewhere better. I once, um, we had someone years ago that we worked with, and he really struggled with depression um, and had got some medication and some help from it and was doing a lot better. Um, but then he had a girlfriend and he, you know, imagined, he, he saw their life together, you know, as a life of ministry and serving the Lord together and this was how his life was going to go. go. Um, but then she broke it off with him, um, you know, broke up with him, and um, suddenly he's in this place like, but all I thought was going to happen now isn't going to happen. And um, I, I was praying for him, and I felt the temptation for him would be to just go back into depression and um, to just give up. Um, but I felt the Lord was saying, he gave me a very clear picture for him that if he, yeah, he was in a dark cave at the moment, and he felt he couldn't see his way forward. But if he didn't just decide to give up and just settle there, but if he kept feeling his way forward, I could see he'd quickly turn a corner and then out, then, then I could see the light in a beautiful field in front. So I took my courage in my hands and I shared that with him. And I was like, don't, you know, I just feel the Lord is saying, 
he's got something for you. Don't give up. This isn't the end. Um, stay engaged. And to his credit, he really did. He, he you know, instead of uh, excusing himself from different things that churches were doing or going out to meals with friends or doing other things, which could have been his default position. He chose to stay engaged. He chose to keep doing things. And just in that three-week period, we had someone come um, on a placement to our church to work with us from somewhere else. And they met in these three weeks, and now they're married and have three children and are serving the Lord together up north in England. So it wasn't the end of the story for him. Um, God did have a plan, um, but he needed encouragement to keep going, not to give up, because God did have something better. So we need to keep our hearts open to hope. Now, sometimes it doesn't always work out that way and that quickly, but we need to keep our hearts open to hope regardless, because that can keep us from getting stuck in that suffering. Times in suffering are like this. I think of them like this. When we go through something difficult in life, whatever it is, we're wounded, the same way a soldier is on a battlefield. Some wounds soldiers pick up are more serious than others, and some take longer to heal than others. But those that aren't mortal, that don't kill outright, they need to be treated so no infection takes hold, and so that he or she is given the best chance to fully recover. And I think that's like the wounds we receive, because we're in a spiritual battle. Often, when we're wounded, we're wounded emotionally, we can be wounded mentally, we can be wounded spiritually. Often, all three can happen at once. And we need to guard in those times that we, we don't pick up an infection that can spread from the wound to the healthy places. An infection like unforgiveness or bitterness, um, a sense of rejection, shame, self-pity, things like that. And even if we are careful not to allow infection to spread, we also need to do what's necessary to allow healing to take place by not denying we're wounded. That's what I did for many years. I denied I was wounded <clears throat> on the one hand or on the other by not continually inspecting the wound, you're not just going over and over and over again. Um, and I think of it as metaphorically picking the scabs. You start to heal and then you go and you look at it again and you pick at the scabs and then it starts to heal and then you go and you pick at it again. So it's finding that right between denial but also obsessing over um, so, that, um, so that we can heal well. And that means we need to move beyond our disappointments and we need to get reappointed. Now, you will know there are many ways for disappointments to enter our lives. <clears throat> the list is endless. Relationship breakdown, abuse, um, illness, our own or someone else's. Uh, it can come through sudden tragedy, like in my case, or it could be loss of employment, bereavement. It can just be unmet expectations. Um, I thought my life was going to go this way, and it hasn't turned out that way. And we can get really disappointed in that. But these are things that are common to all of us. We will all have examples of those in our life. Um, and in fact, Jesus promised us in John 16. <clears throat> He's got a lot of great promises, but this one, mm, in this world, you will have trouble. So these struggles are a part of life. And if we don't move on from them, we can get stuck in that place of dis disappointment, which can lead to discouragement, which can lead to depression, which can lead to despair that getting stuck in suffering. But the good news is that Jesus didn't stop with promising we'd have trouble. That was the first part of the sentence. But then he said, but take heart. I think of it, cheer up, because I have overcome the world, he said. 
God is always wanting to meet us in our places of disappointment, and he's wanting to reappoint us. He's always willing to give us comfort and to give us fresh vision and hope. But we have to be willing to face the pain and make that journey with him. And that means we cannot blame God when things go wrong in our lives. We have to get over the betrayal barrier where, we, where God is concerned. And R.T. Kendall, I get that phrase from him, R.T. Kendall, the great Bible teacher, said all Christians experience disappointment, but I think 90% never get over the betrayal barrier. And that's because we can find it hard to move on when we feel God has let us down. And if we think of ourselves as, you know, we're really good Christians, we don't allow ourselves to think that way about God. Um, Let's say if we find it hard to move on when life hasn't lived up to our expectations. But the fact is, if we're Christians and we believe God is in control of our lives, we will at some level most likely hold him responsible for where we think our life has gone wrong, whether we acknowledge it or not. And that's where the betrayal barrier comes in. But as I said at the beginning, God is good, and he is not the author of our pain. Now, Paul and I have two children, one of them at Warwick University, so we'll see her for dinner tonight, which is nice. Um, And then we have uh, a son, uh, Rachel's 20, Joshua's 23. They're both on the autistic spectrum. So Rachel is very high-functioning. In fact, she comes here to church on a Sunday evening, and Jonathan's telling me, it didn't surprise me, she sits back there on the sofa with her ear, with her earphones in, because it, is all, it can be too much for her, and she needs a way to escape quickly because of her autism. She can get overwhelmed. But she's very high-functioning and, you know, loves writing essays and doing research. So that's great. Our son Joshua, um, who's older, 23, he's very low-functioning, so he, he's nonverbal. We have to do most things for him. We have to brush his teeth. We have to shave him. You know, we have to um, dress him. He goes to a day center now, so he gets some stimulation like that. But it's, it's like having a toddler in a man's body. So having these two children, especially Joshua, who needing so much care, has helped me, I like to think of it as an opportunity, to overcome the betrayal barrier in several different ways. Um, first of all, I had to let go of my, un, uh, my um, unmet expectations. Now, before we had children, I thought, oh, I'm going to be such a cool parent. I'm not going to demand my children go to university. I'm not going to demand they give me grant. You know, the things that you hear, like, oh, my parents expect me to do this, that. Like, I'm going to be, you know, I want them to know God because that's going to be the best thing for them. But I'll let them find their own path in life. But once Joshua hit two and he didn't start talking, and now he's 23, he's still not talking. I, I realized when he was young, I had a lot of expectations. I expected my children would be able to read. I expected my children would be able to talk. I expected to have conversations with them. Um, I expected that they would have friendships. Now, neither of them have ever, even Rachel, who's very high-functioning, she's never really had a friend in all her, um, her life so far. Um, And that's been, I think, actually a lot more painful for me than for her, because I always had lots of friends. But I had these expectations of what life having children would be like, Um, and a lot of them haven't been met. Um, And I've had to learn that what we need to do in those situations is to grieve, and that's perfectly legitimate. This is what I expected. It hasn't happened. Grief can be really healthy. To grieve it and then move on. 
not to keep holding on, but this hasn't happened, but this hasn't happened, but this hasn't, but to say, okay, Lord, this hurts, this hasn't happened, my heart hurts because of this. Help me to understand it, help me to see it from your perspective, and then to um, move on from that and then learn to celebrate what we do have. So grieve the unmet expectations, grieve the things that are hard, and learn to celebrate actually the things that are good the things that we do have. There's lots of things in Joshua's life we can be grateful for. And he got, um, and I say that this process isn't always easy, especially when you're a feeler. So Paul can just think logically about it and just say, okay, well, this is how, you know, and just be a bit more that way, but I feel everything, so it's, it's a lot harder for me to process this. Um, um, he, he struggles in his own way, but, you know, it's just different. Um, now, this isn't always easy, but, but what I have learned through it is that God is faithful. And he will provide help and support. And he has provided help and support. Now, it's not always been the way I wanted or the way I would have written my script for my life or a script for my children's life. But God has provided in different and surprising ways. And, um, and he's helped us to grow much stronger through it. Our relationship with him, our faith. Now, when these things happen in life, these experiences I'm talking about, or you know, unmet expectations, they can cause us to go one of two ways. I'm sure probably more. But we can either then decide, okay, well, I believed in God. Like we'd say, well, we prayed before we had children. We prayed when I was pregnant. We prayed, you know, and yet this isn't what we wanted. So either you decide, well, okay, God's not real, so the prayers were useless anyway, or we decide, well, God's not actually listening or he's not actually that good. Um, it doesn't actually work. Now, these are things that when we are in the hard times of life, we actually have to wrestle with. So you can go that way, but, and, you know, there were days when I did go that way, but I wasn't happy there because actually I did know God and I did know God was good and I wanted God in my life. But I had to reconcile, what is this, um, you know, how do I make sense of this? What I read in the Bible, what I believe of the goodness of God, but actually with the difficulties I'm experiencing and the answers to prayer I'm not seeing. Because Paul and I would go out, we teach about healing, we teach that God heals and how to pray for the sick. And believe it, I've seen people healed. Um, and yet in our own lives, we're not seeing the answers that we want to see. How do we make sense of that? How do we reconcile it? Well, I was really, really helped by um, studying Job, who went through, let's face it, a lot worse things. Um, and Job had everything. Job was a good man. It tells us he was a righteous man. And um, the enemy came in with God's permission. And I know it's a, loads of huge questions in, in that it brings up for us. But um, in that, Job had everything taken away. And he did question he complained. He said, I ne wish I'd never been born, things like that. But in all of it, he never said God is bad. And he never said, you know, there is no God. And he never said God is bad. He still said God is good, and I'm going to worship and praise God. And I was really challenged by that, because if you read, it says, and the, the, the two times after the enemy comes and first takes everything away from Job and then makes Job really sick, it says, but Job did not sin in what he said. And I was really convicted by that because I thought, I think I've sinned a lot in what I've said. I think I've blamed God for a lot of things. And I've got upset with him for my life not <clears throat> turning out the way I wanted or days when I've had bad days. And like, where are you? Know, where are you? Don't you know we serve you and we've given up everything? You know, all of that, which we go through, if we're honest, a lot of us. Um, but I looked and I thought, oh, God, you know, he, Job didn't sin. 
he still said, blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm still going to praise you, God, even though my circumstances are hard. And that was a challenge to me. But by disciplining myself, and it was a discipline to praise God and to say that he's good even when things are hard, oh, it's been so life-giving for me. It is a really hard thing to do um, to start with because I think this is, I feel like I'm lying. I don't feel like, you know, this is, can be good. But actually, um, I, I often use the description of Joshua still has a lot of toileting issues. So cleaning, um, number two, poo off the walls and the floor is a daily experience for us, a daily reality for us. Every day, many times in the evening, it can, we, we're, we're cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. There's lots of reasons for that, but that, that's the thing. So what I used to, like, God, when are you ever going to fix this? Are you ever going to answer our prayer for him to actually be used to toilet correctly? You know, that's where I would go. By the time I'd finished cleaning, I was in a, you know, bad place. But once I started thinking about these things and working on the Lord with them and believing, no, God is good. He's still with me in this. He hasn't abandoned me. He loves me, and he loves Joshua, and he has good plans for us. You know, I may never have a conversation with Joshua until we get to heaven, but one day we will, whether it's on this earth or there. So I started when cleaning the walls. Instead of when I feel the, oh, here we go again. I started singing, blessed be the name of the Lord. So I'd say, you know, uh, yeah, what's the song? The Bent Redmond one. Um, yeah, in the land of monk was suffering. Yeah, blessed, it is supposed to be the name of the Lord. And um, the only problem is now, yeah, I've got it. But now when I, we sing that, that's what I think of. I associate it with cleaning the walls. Um, <clears throat> but I start saying, blessed, yeah, blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, uh, you give and take away all of that, but blessed be your name. And um, instead of then being, feeling really, oh, by the time I finish, actually, I feel quite good. I think this is okay. I can do this because God's with me. And I can do this today. And maybe I don't think I can do it forever, but I can do it today because the Lord is with me. And he'll be with me tomorrow, so that's okay. I'll call on him then too. And I'll just continue to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. He is with us and he is good. And when I was able to start doing that, it really transformed my attitude and it just transformed my experience. So for many years, I was in quite a dark place. Um, you can understand Paul in a demanding, you know, role running a church is big, but because of Joshua, we had to like double lock the doors because he might escape and we brought home police cars and things like that. And I often had to be home with him. So I felt quite isolated, <clears throat> often and quite trapped and couldn't get out and, and all of that. So I found it really hard, but <clears throat> sorry, I remember someone saying to me, you know, just remember the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. And, um, really about the elder brother. So the prodigal son goes off, he comes back, and the father throws a big party, and the elder brother says, yeah, but I've been here all this time, and I've done all this for you. You've never thrown me a party. And the father says, but everything I have is yours. I'm always with you. Everything I have is yours. And so when I would be at home, and I could hear the worship, because we live right next door to the church, I could hear the drums you know, through into our kitchen. I think, oh, there they are all having a great time at church again. Here I am again, cleaning up the poo. Um, All on my own, yeah, okay, that's, yeah, great, thanks, God. All that sort of thing. Then I start thinking, no, you know what, God? You're with me, and everything you have is mine. Even if I'm not experiencing that, it doesn't change that you're with me now. And I can experience your goodness and your grace, and um, you're, you're with me, so it's okay. Now, the first time that feels... 
Okay, I was quite proud of myself that I was able to get it out. Um, but then over time, it just becomes natural. I think, actually, no, I don't need to give in to this feeling of self-pity or whatever else because, God, you're with me, and so it's fine. I can do this, and you, um, you're good, and you're looking after us. And so it totally changed my attitude, totally changed um, my, my perspective on things. And then, and then over time, as I did that, to begin with, my circumstances didn't change, but then over time, they be, my attitude changed, I felt different, and then my circumstances changed. Then someone came along and said, I just feel God's calling me to help you with Joshua so that you can go out and do things with Paul. And then something else would happen, and someone says, I just feel we need to give you this money so you can have a break. And just little things began to happen, and then I was given a lot more freedom. Now, I don't know how that works, cause and effect, but what I know is that God is faithful, and he has met me, and um, I just have a lot more peace and a lot more joy. Partly because I've opened up to his healing um, and, uh, from my past, and partly because I've just learned to celebrate him and not blame him. And... Uh, just think, well, you're, you're bad or you're, you're quite harsh, actually. You demand too much. You ask too much. But actually, no, God is good, and he's with us, um, and he's, he's helping us in our struggles and difficulties. And another lesson is just about our insecurities and not letting them control us. And now that you know insecurity is that profound sense of self-doubt, that just feeling of deep uncertainty about our basic worth and place in the world. Uh, we fear rejection, and we have uncertainty about, you know, are my feelings legitimate? And it's easy for us to be insecure, to carry us, to carry around that sense of self-doubt because it comes naturally to us, but also our culture reinforces it, and we can even reinforce it in each other. We don't mean to often, but we do. Um, I like to use the metaphor of sails when I think about this. Now, I think we'll have a picture of them, but I'm not a sailor, but I understand the principle of how a sail is used to harness the power of the wind to propel a boat in the right direction for it to reach its destination. And for this process to work, the sails need to be in good condition with no holes, no tears, no fraying on the edges because that sort of damage stops the sail from being as effective as it should be. And I think for us, our insecurities are like those holes, those tears that fraying of the sail. They prevent us from catching the full power of the wind of the Spirit. And this stops us from being all we can be because much of what God wants to do through us is lost through those holes. And honestly, it takes a lot of discipline and hard work to get and then to keep our sails in a good condition. They can be damaged even before we're born because from the time of conception, we're actually vulnerable to our sails being torn. And many of our insecurities will be well in place before we grow past our early years as we deal with what life throws at us. But the good news is it's never too late to confront those things and overcome them with his help. He's always looking to restore us through his Holy Spirit and to repair our sails. And I just want to finish um, before lunch and a little time of prayer. I just want to finish with an image of uh, God showed me about myself and the work of restoration he's been doing in me over the years. And this happened a few years ago, before lockdown, a year or two before that, at a New Wine summer conference. Um, during a time of ministry, I had this really powerful encounter with the Lord. Now, at first, I wasn't sure. I just felt his presence. I could feel, you know, shaking very mildly and just felt, um, as I often do, in the presence of um, 
the Lord when he's moving. At first, I didn't know, but I've learned to allow the Spirit to do his work without having to understand it, as we were hearing earlier. I know now to just give him permission to do what he wants, knowing it's going to be good, no matter what happens in the moment, whether I end up laughing or crying or not feeling anything at all. I know I'm going to be better for having an encounter with him in that way. And also, in this encounter with the Spirit, the person praying for me never actually said anything I could hear. She just, um, just um, blessed me and asked the Holy Spirit to come. And I think she was praying under her breath, um, but she just let the Lord do the work instead of speaking. But in this case, the per- she, she said she simply felt God told her she needed to pray for me and to invite his presence to come and do what only he can do. And that's what she did. Um, when we finished the time, she just smiled and gave me a hug and walked on. But my experience, I don't know what her experience during that time was, but my experience was this was a very powerful encounter. And what happened after a, a minute or two of letting the Spirit work in me, um, I knew something was happening. And so I thanked him for what he was doing, because that's polite. As I said, I know it'll be something good. So I said, thank you, thank you for what you're doing, Lord. Um, and then I decided to ask. And so I said, Lord, is there something you want me to understand? I don't have to, but if there's something you want me to understand about what you're doing in me in this moment. And I uh, felt him um, clearly say, and this sounds a bit weird, but I clearly heard him say to me, Becky, I'm sewing your arms back on. Now, this was the third time over a couple of years that I'd felt he was speaking to me through a physical picture about what he was doing in me spiritually. The first time was again at a United Conference, summer, a New Wine United Conference, about eight years um, before, well, not that long, maybe five years before that, eight years ago now. After a full week of worship of being God's presence, I heard God say to me, I felt he showed me, and I know it sounds a bit weird, like I'm a bit of a Frankenstein monster, but I just suddenly saw um, a picture of a brain, and he said, what I've been doing this past week is taking off the duct tape that was holding the two halves of your brains together. And I'm like, what? I don't get it, but okay. Um, If you're doing something and you're rewiring me, then thank you. Um, And then another time, a year or two after that, um, at a a day on the Holy Spirit, uh, and I just opened myself to him, I felt he said, I'm doing surgery on your intestine. And he said, I've stitched up, you've got a long wound there, and I've stitched up half of it, that's enough for now. That needs to heal for a bit, and then we'll carry on. So those were the three pictures I'd had over a, a space of a few years. But this, the latest one, when God told me he was sewing my arms back on, in that moment, then after that, I was like, huh? And he said, he carried on then to tell me that I'd been blown apart when my sister had died, like I'd stepped on a landmine, and it sort of blew me apart spiritually. And he'd been putting me together, back together bit by bit, restoring me as I allowed him to. Now, for many years, as I said, I didn't allow him to touch that part of my life. I just didn't want to go there. I didn't want to face it. But what I understood then is that when he removed the tape from the picture he showed me of a brain and he removed the tape, he was reintegrating the part of me I had completely denied and detached from in order to cope. I'd done it to cope, in order to cope. But he's like, I've reintegrated you now so that I could, that the tape was my attempt to hold myself together, but only God could reconnect and restore the two parts of myself into one. And when he did that, I was then finally able to accept what had happened and to believe God wasn't mad at me. 
my thinking about him and myself could be renewed, and then I could receive his gift of hope. Because once I was able to accept what had happened and see it from his perspective, which I couldn't, as it just a tragic accident, which I couldn't do when I refused to acknowledge it, I could then hear him speak his redemption into the situation, and I could begin to believe it. When he was doing surgery on my intestines in that picture at that time, I believe he was closing up the wound in me that meant that though I knew God by then and I was open to his spirit, I quickly lost the effect of his filling, that spiritual nourishment he'd been giving me. The trauma I'd experienced and then the guilt and shame I lived with had wounded me in a way that meant I found it hard to retain the good things of him, the love, the joy, the peace, those things that God would fill me with when I allowed him to. But by stitching up that wound, God was healing me so I wouldn't so quickly lose the effects of his good works in my life. So once he'd done work on my mind, and then he'd done work on my inmost being, then I was ready to have my arms sewn back on. He restored my thinking, he restored my spirit, and then he restored my ability to give and to receive from others. Now I know that God is still restoring me. Um, he's done a lot of work in me. I always say my story, what happened in my past with my sister used to control me, but now I control it. So I can tell my story and it doesn't make me panic. It doesn't you know, make me wanna run away and leave the room. Um, I can tell it because I control it. Now it doesn't control me. And that's all the result of the Lord's healing and my, ability, my, my willingness to look at it with him and to cry a lot of tears and just to hear his redemption and his healing and to receive it. It's like a deep wound that he's gradually been healing over time. So he's been restoring me, putting me back together. Now, I like to say I haven't heard about my legs yet, so you know, there's still a work of restoration he's doing in me. You know, I'm getting used to using my arms, but there's still, I know, there's always more with the Lord. That's what we've been talking about. There's always more. But because I've allowed him to do that, I've stopped hiding. So whereas I used to, well, I didn't have a choice in some ways, but also I didn't want to be seen. I didn't want to share and leading the church with Paul or speak publicly. I was too, um, I just wanted to stay hidden, but that's because it was a part of my life I denied. And so that's you know, how it sort of works for us. But once I let the Holy Spirit restore me, then I was able to step into more of what he was calling me to, what more he gifted me to. He'd often say to me, Becky, I've put all this treasure in you. I want you to open your mouth and share it. And I'm like, no, thank you. I don't think you meant to say that to me, or maybe I'm hearing wrong. But as I gradually learned to be obedient, to him and to say, okay, Lord, you know, but you've got to make it possible. You know, he's very gentle. He de deals with us all and according to our own personalities and our own ways and he, step by step by step leading me so that I can share my story. And like I was saying at the beginning, he can bring positive out of any negative. So he can't, you know, we don't change the past, but what we can do is invite him into it where we've been wounded and have his restoration and know we just have to trust him with what happened um, but know that now he's taken my mess, I like to say, and made it a message of hope. He's taken my trash and he's turned it into treasure, any of those sorts of things, so that I can point to him and say, I've known his love, I've known his grace, I've known his mercy, he's brought me so much healing, 
um, from that. And I still have, you know, other bits to go and new things come that you need more healing from, etc. But just doing it with him, stepping into that more he has for me. It looks different for everyone, but the more he has for me. Instead of saying, well, we can't do that because of our children. We can't do that because of this. God says, no, with me, it's like walking on water. You can do it. It seems impossible, but with me, you can do it. So um, don't let, you know, if I'm calling you, if I'm saying come, then it's going to be okay. So that's my story, and that's my um, uh, just encouragement that when we have wounds, um, just to be real with them before the Lord um, and be real with them with someone safe um, and get prayer. So we'll have a bit of time prayer now. Obviously, we'll have lunch in a few minutes, so there's not time to really, um, you know, deal with all of life's wounds and traumas in 10 minutes. Um, yeah, you're probably relieved to know. Um, I would say, if I was sitting where you are, listening to someone like me in the past, I'd have been like, get me out of here right now. I don't want to, you know, this is too threatening. Um, but you don't have to be, feel threatened because it's a safe place and we haven't got that much time, so it's okay. So, but we will still ask the Spirit to come. And what I would say is he can deal with something. So let's say... Um, that I, you know, was wounded quite deeply with what happened to me. But yesterday, I may have spiritually, let's say, skinned and uh, fallen and skinned my knee. So something happened that's hurt me in some way. But it's not a deep thing. But God can come, and he, he cares as much about both. He's a good dad, so he cares as much about any wound you have. So, you know, if it's not a serious thing, Paul would say that he didn't have those sorts of things in his life. You know, it's like, I didn't have, that, you know, that much trauma in my life. But God cares about everything. He still had issues. We all do. Things that happen, bullying at school or different things that happen or um, a hard day or times, you know, anything, the Lord cares. And he wants to come and meet us with his comfort, with his um, restoration, with his balm, his Holy Spirit balm of healing. So we'll just give him a few minutes now to have a chance to do that, and then we'll have lunch, and then we'll um, come back for fun this afternoon. (laughs) Um, So I know this is quite a heavy session, listening to my story, and it brings up things for everyone. Um, But that's okay, because it's good to look at these things with the Lord, and then we, we don't get trapped by them, or they don't control us. We move on into a better place. So, um, I'll just ask you to stand again because you've been listening to me for an hour now. Well done. Well done. And we'll just um, have a few minutes before lunch.